Anybody see the new Star Wars? Great. Thoughts? Thumbs up? Thumbs down? Thumbs sideways? All right. Uh, so uh, every time one of the new episodes comes out the last two years, it's just been a habit to want to go back and watch older episodes, or at least any episodes without Jar Jar Binks in it, right? Like, that's what I'm good with, and other than that, uh, you're dead to me. Uh, no, like, it's just so, but like, if you think about it, I was, I was watching, by the way, anybody a Jar Jar fan? Thank you. No, okay, good. So I was like, I didn't want to offend anybody, but anyway. Um, so as I was watching it, you know, one of the most, everybody probably has I, like one-liners, iconic lines that kind of stick with you. Anybody have one of your favorite lines from one of the movies you want to throw at me real quick? Top of your head? I love you, I know. Okay, I don't know that one. Okay. Anybody else? What's that? All right, here's one of my favorites. Here, here's one of my favorites. Uh, these aren't the droids you're looking for, right? Like, these aren't the droids you're looking for. I remember seeing that, seeing Star Wars as a kid and seeing Obi-Wan just kind of slightly move his hand and thinking, I want to be able to do that. Like, whatever it takes in life to, like, accrue those abilities to look at someone and say, no, this isn't what you're thinking. This is actually what you're thinking instead. Like, that's what I wanted to do. Maybe that's why I wanted to be a preacher. I don't know. But, like, I wanted to be, I wanted just to be like, no, these aren't the droids you're looking for. And whenever I would then read a passage like this in the Gospels, it felt like Jesus was, like, like pulling some Jedi mind tricks off right? Like he's walking along the Sea of Galilee, and then he says, come and follow me. Like, have you ever met a person in your life? Just bear with me for a second. Have you ever met a person in your life that just walked up to you, like rando dude at coffee shop, right? And they say, hey, come and follow me. Like, what would be your thought there? No, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to stay and have my coffee. This is uncomfortable, and I'm calling authorities. You know, like something along those lines, you're going, this isn't the norm. And, but actually, there's something really special happening here that I, I think can speak to us because Jesus is doing more than just throwing out some kind of weird Jedi line. He actually is giving an invitation that these people, these brothers, these future disciples never thought could be true and were always waiting for. So to kind of set the context a little Jesus, what we know, is kind of building some steam, right? Like if you read any of the Gospels up to this point, you know in the first couple of chapters that he has had this incredible moment of being baptized and that it was surreal. They, people could hear this voice, supposedly, saying, this is my beloved in whom I am well pleased. And so he does that at the Jordan River. Um, and from there, he goes and fasts for 40 days and nights to center himself and prepare himself for the long journey ahead. And so coming out of it, we know that he moved. He moved from Nazareth, which is like north central part of Palestine, Israel, up to Galilee area, which would be more the northeast part of Palestine, Israel. So he, he moves there and he starts preaching. Um, now, when it says he starts preaching, it's important we kind of understand the context of kind of what that means. Two different kinds of rabbis at this time. You had rabbis who were hired by the community 
to teach in the school. A school would be called the, the Bet Sefer. And in the Bet Sefer, you would have these rabbis hired, and they would teach the kids. And kids would start in Bet Sefer at five years old because that's when their minds were ready to start engaging. So it's the same for us today, really, like kindergarten, elementary school. That'd be the time. And their education would be the Torah. And it would be memorizing the Torah. It would be learning to engage the Torah, because all of culture revolved around Torah. And so as a child, because you didn't have books or scrolls at home, right? And so you had them at the school. And so the the rabbi would be hired by the community to come in, and because communities are small, you just usually have one rabbi, and they would come in, and they would teach, and they would teach the children. And so they would teach the children until the children turned 13, and when they would turn 13, you would see what kind of Torah acumen they had, basically. Like, did they really connect with what was being taught with the Torah? And do they have like natural inclination to midrash, which midrash would be what other rabbis would kind of dish on around the laws, around the teachings from Moses and the prophets. And if they had the acumen to go for that, then they would be invited to go into bet midrash. Now, here's why I'm giving all that. Jesus wasn't hired to teach in local schools because you had those kind of rabbis, and then you had the rabbis who just kind of like were itinerant preachers. They just traveled, and they had a message, and people wanted to hear those messages, and they may get money, they may not get money, but they usually had a particular bend to their message, and every rabbi was having their kind of their own spin as well to what all the Torah was saying. And honestly, the equivalent would be today of like, whether it's different preachers at different churches, or whether it's people who have podcasts. I know a lot of us in here have probably... Uh, listen to certain people and influencers within the church. Maybe the equivalent could even be books. Like maybe you have a certain person that you like their writing or whatever else. Well, that's really the same as it was then. They just, like, they weren't writing. They were just kind of traveling and, and speaking. And we know that Jesus was in Galilee, and he settled there for a bit. I'm sorry, yeah, in Galilee, he settled for a bit. And we also know in Galilee that there's a lot happening there. There's a lot of rabbis. It actually was one of the many epicenters of like religiosity in, in Palestine and Israel. In the south, obviously, it would have been Jerusalem, but in the north, Galilee had a lot happening. So Jesus moves there, and he's got a lot of momentum, and he starts this message, and this message is really fresh and really different because he's saying something that others aren't willing to say yet. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, for a new rule is coming. Change your minds. That's what repent means. Change your minds and get yourself ready because God is on the move and you don't want to miss it. Now, with every rabbi, they would have uh, disciples or Talmudines. And you have to remember, like, there were like two, there were two, basically two major rabbis at this time, and they were called houses. You had the house of Shammai and the house of Hillel. And these two houses, like if, if you ever could get invited to go to one of these two houses when you were 13, it was like getting an offer from Harvard or Yale. Like you didn't want to pass it up. Like you knew that you had to go. Because if you got invited to Hillel or Shammai, that means like your ticket's kind of written for you. And nothing was more prestigious in a religious culture than rabbis. 
Like if your whole educational system is built around Torah, then if you get to be a disciple, then that means you get to like become this important figure one day as well. And every rabbi had disciples. These disciples, it would say that you were to follow in the dust of the rabbi. You were to follow in the dust of the rabbi. Like this was 24-7 access to rabbis. Uh, uh, others have talked about like uh, one rabbi in his midrash and talking through it was like, you're to follow after rabbis in their, in their dust so closely and then you cake your face with their dirt when they're walking from their sandals. That's how close you're supposed to be with your rabbi. So it wasn't just that you're going to get education from the rabbi. You were going to get lessons of life. You're, you were going to eat with the rabbi and sleep in the same room for sanity with the rabbi. Like you were going to get all this access until the time came into your 20s for you then to start the process maybe of being a rabbi. And so this was a very prestigious offer that everyone was hoping to get. But the truth of the matter was not everybody got it because only a few could get in. I mean, there were different rabbis out there, and every rabbi had to have their posse, their disciples. But like, if you didn't make Hillel or Shammai, if you could make the other ones, it'd be like just getting into a four-year school or maybe a two-year junior college. You'll take it. It's not the same, but it's still important. But others at 13 who couldn't get into these schools would go and learn trades, family trades, and they'd go back into the workforce which was the overwhelming majority of people. Now, here's why I say that, because this is the stage set for us. Jesus is building steam. There's momentum. He's a rabbi. He's not Yale or Harvard, but like, he's a good SEC school maybe. Like, he's not like, like junior Ivy, but like, there's something happening there, all right? And he supposedly could go to Bet Midrash and pick some, like, Talmudines, some disciples. But he doesn't. And what's interesting here is that he decides to, like, pick some randos. And let's look at verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now think about this. Here's a respectable public figure because Jesus hasn't done all the crazy stuff yet, right? Where they're like, what are you doing? Like, so he's got this message. People love rabbis. Rabbis are important. Maybe I'll kind of get picked. And what does he do? He doesn't go to Bet Midrash to pick. He's taking a walk by the Sea of Galilee. And he sees fishermen. Now, uh, fishermen were important, obviously, because they are part of the economical development of culture. But you aren't like going to school to learn how to be a fisherman, right? Like anybody been to school to be a fisherman? No, like it's not what you do. And so at this time, they, they were just learning this trade. This is what they were handed. 
And they were just out like they, think about this. All these kids are going, man, I really hope I get into Midrush. I really hope this happens at 12 years old. I really want to like up my game and get better and learn more. And then age 13 comes and they, and they say, you're not picked. You're not part of the 1%. You're not part of the small percentile that get to move on and have these more like uh, distinguished lives. And so they've accepted it, and we know that they're probably now into their mid to late 20s, more than likely married, and they've moved on with life. Those dreams have died. And here comes Jesus, walks up, and he says to them, come follow me. See, Jesus wasn't pulling off a Jedi mind trick. He was actually giving them the invitation of a lifetime, something that they had to let die years before when they were just kids. And here comes Jesus on the scene saying, no, there's room for you. And I'm not going to pick from the places you're supposed to pick from. I'm not going to pick from the places where they're most educated or most distinguished or most, most groomed. I'm going to pick you. I'm going to pick you. You forgotten one. You one just mending nets to go out for a fish. And I think there's some things there that we can just pull immediately and like be encouraged by. The first thing I think that we can be encouraged by from this is that God will find you. God will find you. Not you, God. We spend so much time in our lives thinking that we have to find God. And we turn ourselves over and over and get ourselves in such a frenzy. We read this and learn that and get this doctrine down and feel secure there. And then you still wonder why you're so lonely. Because you're not finding God there. It's not your job. Neither really could you. Oh, trust me. I know the passages, Jeremiah 29. I get it. Seek the Lord while he may be found. I understand these things. I also know when God shows up on the scene, it wasn't disciples, because you got to imagine there were some disciples vying for him to pick them. It's not you finding God, it's God finding you, which means this, how did he find them? While they were mending their nets. Where did God find them? While they were doing the everyday tasks they were given. You know, a lot of us get in our minds that, and especially I've seen this within a millennial culture, which makes up a lot of our church here, but Xers feel this as well. If you're a Zoomer, I have no idea who you are or how to deal with you. But for the other two generations, I'll say this. I know that purpose and meaning with your life really matters. I know that you want to do something, even if it's not great, something that means and adds to the world around you. And we really get caught up with the purpose that we're meant for. And I think that's good and important. And yet what we lose sight on is that the great purpose for your life isn't something that you go and find. It's something that finds you. The, the muse you're looking for isn't, well, let me create this 10-year trajectory of how I'm going to hit it along the way and get this education. Because how many people do you know in their 40s, 50s, even in their 30s, people who finally hit the thing they said they wanted to, and they're so miserable. They're still wondering what their purpose in this world must be. 
And I think a lot of it boils down to we get so caught up in pursuing something that we forget that when it's time, you will be found. When it's time, God finds you. When it's time, while you're mending your nets, doing the menial tasks in front of you, working on a marriage that's difficult, raising kids that scare you, (laughs) right? Trying to work in a job that frustrates you, but being faithful with it, that's where God finds you. And I think that can be encouraging for us. So the first thing is, it's not that we find God, it's that God will find you. The second thing is that Christ will transform you. When God really finds you, Christ transforms you. It says here that I will make you fishers of men, which I love that, right? Like Jesus takes this idea, this metaphor of they are fishermen, and he relates to them. And he says, the thing that you know to do, because think about it, they're fishermen and they haven't been to Bet Midrash at all. And they're like, we don't know what to do here. What do you mean you're asking us? So Jesus eases it and says, it's kind of like fishing. It's kind of like mending nets. You just step into it. And guess what? I am going to make you, and I'm going to take the things you've done and make you into this person who can fish for men. The, the, the Greek word is poieo, poieo, to make. It's to fashion. And this is why even they talk about in the Old Testament, you'll see passages in Jeremiah about God is the potter and we are the clay, and how you take something that's malleable and it's shaped into something beautiful. The question is this, how malleable are we? Are you willing to be shaped by God? Or are you so sure of what it is that life's supposed to be and who God is supposed to be that when God shows up finding you, he's ready to shape you, he can't shape you because you're too hardened. You know exactly how it's supposed to be. This is the... um, It's not a wrong thing at all, but this is one of the big hindrances even when we start saying, well, I know exactly who God is because I learned this doctrine and everything's really clear to me now and I have no fears. What do you do when God shows up and he's trying to speak to you but doesn't fit within your tight box? Well, it must not be God. Okay, I agree it's not TBN. We all can agree on that. But is God trying to speak to you but you're too certain and sure? You're missing out on the transformation. Maybe part of the the thing you're missing right now is that because you're so sure of those things, you're missing where God could be shaping you into doing more, to take the thing you're already doing and it be turned into something, which honestly, isn't that the best in life? It's not that you get a complete reset of everything. It's that he takes the thing that you are and have been about and then shows ultimate purpose in it, that nothing is lost that everything belongs, and that he will in time shape you. He will in time give you a deeper purpose. You don't have it now? Okay, welcome to the club. You don't understand it all? Okay, you're human. Me too. And yet, are you willing to let God find you? Are you willing when that time comes to let him shape you? And I'm speaking in these kind of 30,000-foot terms because I don't know exactly what your situation is, but I do know this. I know that all of us want 
change. We want things to change. We want movement. If it's scary. And movement's scary, isn't it? Change is scary. Transforming is scary. I mean, where are all my Enneagram subtype self-preservers, right? Like, we don't want change. Like, I'm not that, but you don't want change. I, I think I see you. I get it. And yet, change is part of life. Change is movement. And Jesus says, I've come here to change you. But the number three is this. Following him, following Christ, is a risk. It's a risk, no doubt about it. You know, it was a risk for the disciples. Well, first it was a risk for Jesus. Because, like, he knew what he would be getting if he went to a bet midrash and picked there. I know what I'll get. But he wasn't so sure if he picked from, like, fishermen, <laughs> who weren't educated in Midrash, who didn't know how to handle and work their way through maybe even a paper bag of Torah. And so Jesus is taking a risk. I hope they can do this. But he sees something there. It's really important. I don't know what he saw, but he saw it. But then, even though it was fulfilling all their dreams that many of them had and then had died, these fishermen, it's still a risk. Like, what if this guy's crazy? And by the way, Jesus was considered crazy. Like, you don't end your ministry dying on a cross, and everybody goes, well, that worked out well, right? Like, nobody looks at that and goes, oh, yes, yes, he, perfect, really good. That's why Rome crucified him. No, like, Jesus ended his ministry supposedly at that time as a failure, as one more rebel that deserved being put up there. And think about for these disciples, they gave up everything to follow him. And what do they end up doing at the end? Running for their lives hiding up in rooms, wondering, like, will they live to the next day? That's a big risk. And yet, it's something that must be a part of the journey with Christ. There's a quote in your bulletin from N.T. Wright, and it says, the longer you look at Jesus, the more you will want to serve him in this world. That is, of course, if it's the real Jesus you're looking at. Plenty of people in the church and outside it have made up a Jesus for themselves, and have found that this invented character makes few real demands on them. He makes them feel happy from time to time, but doesn't challenge them, doesn't suggest they get up and do something about the plight of the world, which is, of course, what the real Jesus had an uncomfortable habit of doing. It's a challenge to follow Jesus because you're going to be willing to live with the amount of shame of like, oh man, this is hard. Like for example, it's difficult landing on something religiously in a pluralistic society. It's a difficult thing to say, I follow Christ. Well, how do you know? Like, well, you Because everybody wants it to be like a, well, but like prove it to me. I don't know how to prove it to you. If I try to do that, like I don't know if it'll work that well. I just know that this is what Christ means to me. But that's a difficult thing. It's a difficult thing that the hallmark banner of following Christ is humility and not grandiosity. I guarantee you, you will not, more than likely, you will not get to be this grand, important figure if you follow him. Because if so, more than likely, you're not going to be dealing with a lot of humility. Because humans weren't meant to have that much attention, that much power, that much glory. Kanye even said that. Thank you. You're listening. No one man. Um, 
But like we're not meant to have those things and we're actually meant to be able to live with some kind of humility, which is costly because nobody as a kid thinks, you know what I want to do when I grow up? I just want to be humble and not seen. Like, no, nobody's saying that. Like, I want to be a baseball player. I want to be an astronaut. I want to, I want to have a rock, what, I don't know, rock band. Nobody says that anymore, I guess. But like, I want to, whatever. It's difficult because it means you're more than likely going to be misunderstood for seeking for health, for saying no to big opportunities when it means you get to have more of yourself and your family. When you're not making decisions the way the world around you makes them, working up a ladder, but instead you jump off the ladder and say, I'm not playing that game of comparing of being better than or less than. It's difficult. But here's what I think. I think we want that. I think we want that kind of relationship and we want that kind of rhythm to life because we know deep inside that's where the good stuff happens. The good stuff happens where you don't make it on your own, but you're found and something takes you somewhere because you know it's yours. You don't live with the sweat, so what if I lose it tomorrow? I think deep inside we want to know that we can change I want to do all these resolutions. I want to change. I don't want to stay stagnant. Yeah, it's scary. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, losing weight hurts. I get it. And yet, we want it because we know we're meant for it. And I think we like some risk in our lives. It kind of keeps things interesting because we want it to lead to something greater. We just know we don't want to stay here. Now, the question is this, if there's something in us deep inside that wants it, what happens to us? Like, you read this, I read this, and I was thinking about it all week. Beautiful, Jesus like Obi-Wan's them, right? Like, he invites them into things, and it's beautiful. And come and follow me, I make you fishers of men. And I was like, yes, that beautiful moment of interacting with Christ, where it just makes sense, Maybe younger in your walk of faith, if you identify as Christian, younger in your walk of faith, you're like, Jesus meant so much. And then you hear something like this and you're even trying to pay attention right now because it's so dull. Like something's worn off about him. The shine's no longer there. I won't ask for a raise of hands, but I see your faces, I get it. And you wonder like, what happened? It's like there was an explosion somewhere, and I've been living with the effects of it since, and I can't conjure my heart up or preach the gospel to myself enough or read another book or listen to another podcast to get myself up on those highs again. I think this other passage helps. I think it helps some, at least. It won't give us all the answers, but it helps some. I'll read a few verses to you from 1 Corinthians 1. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. And what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Another, I follow Christ. Now, Paul is writing to this church in Corinth, which they were made up in like households all over the city. And there would be like different overseers or pastors like Chloe throughout that were loving their little small congregation. So he's writing to the church as a whole in Corinth and he's hearing that there is divisions. Um, Mahatmic Gandhi famously quipped, um, I, I like your Christ, 
I do not like your Christians. They are not like your Christ. Like there, nothing turns off people more than Christians. Like nobody, nothing turns people off from Jesus more than Christians. It is what it is. Like it's not that there is some great like other religions apologists out there that are like convincing the masses. No, don't follow Jesus. No, it's not that. It's not Christopher Hitchens or anyone else out there. It's you and me. We're the turnoff. We're not the appeal. It is what it is. Welcome to church. And I think within those quibbles and those divisions, because trust me, they're still happening today. The great schism of the 11th century, the Reformation. I get it. You like it if you're on the side that benefits you. But what about the side where it left from? Everybody claiming what they know to be true and this is it. I mean, my dad asked him, my dad's a Muslim, and he would ask me uh, this many times. He goes, why do you have so many, like, what do you call them, denominations? Like, why do you have so many? Like, why does everybody just, like, I don't get that. We have, we have three. We don't really believe Sufis know anything. So it's either Shiites or Sunnis. You know what I mean? Like, I don't get it. And it's like split after split after split after split after split after split after split. At some point in time, you start going, is this worth it? I think a lot of us in this room maybe have even been scarred by that. It wasn't that God didn't answer all your prayers. It's that certain leaders treated you certain ways or you experienced harm and abuse or whatever it may be. And I here's what I think that happens. I think at some point in time, we get caught up following the people who talk about Jesus more than following Jesus. Like, our lives aren't good unless I get my hit of so-and-so on a podcast. I'm not okay unless I get this new book in me and digested. I want you to know something. If you ended up on an island and never had another person to listen to or another book to read, God could still meet you there and you'd be fine. And we set it up this way in our churches, don't we? We set it up this way where we come and there's this person who's speaking from God, preaching from this Bible. It's like God standing behind them. And what they say have to be this life-changing thing for us because I have so much fear I don't know what to do with my life. So therefore, just give me a hit, give me an answer. And I'm not saying this is wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm paid to do this. I get a job. I'm not trying to work myself out of a job. But I am trying to call a spade a spade that we tend to not be Bereans who listen to Paul, right, in Acts, and then say, mm, I'll think about what you said and let you know tomorrow if I agree with you or not. Instead, we want one person to tell us how it's going to be and take away these concerns we have. And listen, friends, I think this is one of our major dilemmas in the church today. Because in turn, what happens is when a leader fails us, our world crumbles. But did Christ fail you or the leader fail you? Did the system fail you or did God fail you? I think the big turnoff in the deconstructive movement, which we love deconstruction here, come and don't deconstruct in isolation, deconstruct with us. It's all good. But I think one of the things that happens in this deconstruction movement is that they have all this resentment and rage, I know I did, towards God when really it's towards the system. It's toward the person who was a perpetrator in our lives that was harmful to us, whatever it may be. And that's why we're trying to do certain things that we're doing here at Christ City. Listen, um, Drew is leaving. 
And I was encouraging our 930 volunteer crowd, we pray that this is sad and we must have our grief around this. And we're going to celebrate well today. And some of you, and I've said this to you, I really hope that there are many of you, if you haven't done this, don't wait to say the thing to Lauren Drew you want to say, to let them know how grateful you are. Don't wait. You guys have been so incredible here at our church. We're going to miss you. Don't wait on that. And I want you to know something. This church will be fine. Both get to be true. And if I'm not here, this church will be fine. Or if Jamin's not here, this church will be fine. I know there's comfort in different voices. That's why we actually try to have multiple voices preaching. My job is to oversee vision and preaching at the church, but I only preach half the time on purpose. Because I know what it's like to get caught up in a cult of personality. Now listen, everybody's got their jam. I like Apollos, I like Paul, I like Cephas, right? And there's somebody's like, I like Jesus. You're like, get out of here with your I like Jesus. <laughs> like you're that guy in school, right? Here's the answer. <laughs> like I get it, we all got our jam, we all like what we like. But can't you see that's not the answer? And if we can't truly follow Christ, we'll end up following someone else. And trust me, friends, I will let you down. And so will others, because this is called being human. This isn't some person walking down from the mountain named Moses. And what I want for this church, and this is even why we create the space we do with the pendulum. You know, a lot of you have been attracted to this idea. If you haven't seen it, you can go on online and look at it. But here's a screenshot of it, that we want to be a place where a lot of views get to coexist together. like a lot of views get to coexist together, that where you land on X, Y, and Z issues get to land together. This is why if you go to our beliefs and doctrines page on our website, it's the Apostles' Creed. That's it. Like, that's it. What about this issue? What do you think? Where do you land on that? Where do you land? Like, I'm just going to pull Jesus questions on you. What do you think about that? Where do you land on that? That's important. How are you wrestling through it? Because what's important is this. Our city and our culture and our world are filled with places that have loads of answers. And as long as that person saying those answers is there, we're good. But this space is meant to be a place where you really can belong and you really can meet God regardless of who's standing here because the space created is for us to get to coexist and have unity. Because let me tell you something, nothing turns the world off more than Christians who can't have unity. You land here on that issue, great, good for you. Now, follow Christ. Well, yeah, but I have these views about politics, great, follow Christ. Because if another person in this room says they're following Christ, that's your brother and sister, regardless of where they land on X, Y, and Z things. Are you with me? And this is who we are. This is what this church is about, regardless of who's standing up here. And I think deep inside, this is what we want. We just want something to be that real, where it doesn't hinge on a person. Because you know this, if it hinged on you, it wouldn't be that real. We want something more sustainable, something more with longevity, and I think that is Christ, following Christ. And when we follow Christ, well, first off, he finds you. Second, he transforms you. And lastly, it's pretty risky when you do.
Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we come to you and your table, we pray that we'd be able to experience unity with the brother and sister sitting to our right and left, with the person that we see things differently from. And yet if that person says they follow Christ, well, then that is our brother and that is our sister. And I ask that um, we'd be able to experience you in a way this morning that maybe we've missed out on from time to time. That we'd see that maybe we're trying to follow others instead of really following you. That maybe a lot of our hurt and harm in the past hasn't really been about you, but have been about those who would talk about you and how much weight we would give those people. And it's a very normal, natural thing because we grew up as kids with parents. We want people to give us direction in life. And yet, ultimately, we must follow you. So we thank you for this table. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.